Let's all stand up and have a word of prayer. Father, we come to your holy presence in the name of your son, Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you died for us upon the cross, taking upon your own self all our sins, our diseases and shortcomings. And Lord, we thank you that you said where two or three of us are gathered together in your name, you're there in the midst of them. So Lord, we acknowledge your presence in this place. We ask you to let your word go forth and touch our hearts, fill our hearts with faith and expectation. Draw us closer to you that we may walk with you, Father, and walk in faith and live to fulfill your purposes and bear much fruit so that you are glorified. Heal those that are sick, Lord, and do miracles in this place. This morning, and Lord, for everything you do, we give you all the glory, we give you all the honor and the praise. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Please be seated. I'm greatly honored to be here. Thank you. Pastor Andy, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Praise God. Because, you know, I I lived in the United States for 26 years and we used to live in Sweden before. And when I used to live in Sweden, I used to fly in uh, to preach. And uh, everybody I knew was in Texas and Oklahoma. So... Uh, so I used to rent a car, fly into Dallas and rent a car and drive all over the place. And, and, uh, but then when I, we actually immigrated here, we moved to Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania is so far. So I don't very often get to come to this part of the country, but it's nice. It's, uh, I like catfish and grits and, <laughs> and okra and all that good stuff, which you don't get up there. Well, I can get a Cracker Bell, but Cracker Bell is fake, you know. It's not. <laughs> but praise God. I'm, I'm glad to be here. I am, uh, my name is Christopher Alam. And, but, you know, I, I, I was, I was born as a Muslim. So Christopher is a name I chose, but my first name was Muhammad, you know, like everybody else in that part of the world. Muhammad is, everybody has Muhammad in his name, in his, name, either the first name or his middle name. I actually heard of one guy, his name was Muhammad, 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 the first, <laughs> middle, and last name. But uh, my, my name was, uh, my first name was Muhammad. Actually, uh, my real name, my full name that my grandfather gave me, I will say it only once, I will not repeat it again. It was Abdul Nasser Muhammad Al-Alam Al-Hashimi. So that's a real double-barreled or triple-barreled name. And, uh, but it's interesting because uh, Abdul Nasser, uh, the first name that my grandfather gave me, uh, because, you know, it was his, he was honored to choose. My dad asked him to give him his first name. So my dad gave me the name Abdul Nasser, which I, I didn't know what it meant at that time, but I found out it means the servant of the man from Nazareth. And uh, so I don't know why my grandfather chose that name for me. But that's what I was known as all my life. And uh, But I was uh, 21 years old when uh, I, I got saved. And uh, until the age of 21, I had never met a Christian. I had never heard about Jesus, except that he was some kind of prophet. Uh, I had never seen a Bible, never been to a church. I didn't know anything about Jesus Christ. And uh, I left home when I was 13. I joined the military. I was a combat veteran. But when I was 17, uh, 17, 18, I went to war. I was an army officer. So 
a, lo a lot of bad things happened in my life. Other than the war also, there were a lot of bad circumstances in my life. So by the time, uh, from the age 15 onwards, I was suicidal. Uh, I really, I lived on the verge of, on the brink of suicide. But the only thing that uh, kept me from killing myself was uh, Islam actually teaches that a person who commits suicide will go to hell and there's no mitigating circumstances. So uh, I knew I knew that I was a sinner and I knew that because Muslims have a concept of heaven and hell. And um, what, what, what they believe is this, that when you stand before God, all your good deeds and all your uh, sins will be put on a scale. And the side that is heavier, that's where you're going to go. So I knew that I was a sinner and my sins were far more than anything good I'd ever done in my life. And so I was afraid to die. And so uh, that, that fear of death, fear of going to hell and spending eternity in hell, that was the one thing that kept me from committing suicide. But I knew that even if I didn't commit suicide, at the end of the day, I'd go to hell anyway. But uh, when I met this uh, man on the street and he began to tell me about Jesus, uh, it was the most amazing thing because, you know, I'd never met a Christian. I didn't know anything about Christianity. And and what he said to me that Jesus Christ could set me free. And at that moment, it felt like this is what I've been waiting for my entire life. And when he asked me, do you want to receive Jesus? I said, yes. So I gave my life to Jesus. And immediately I sensed that, uh, not that I was perfect, but there was a huge change in my life. So... Uh, I was worshiping. I I'd be walking down the street, singing, praising God and laughing. I was happy for the first time in my life. And so uh, they thought there was something wrong with me. So the military put me in a mental hospital uh, where they had me for psychiatric evaluation. They were wondering what was wrong with me. And I was witnessing there. And then one of the staff members got saved. And then the Psychiatrist, he decided to let me go before, you know, I, so, so then, then I was under house arrest and, uh, uh, and, uh, I escaped from house arrest and then I went off, uh, I was, you know, the army and the police were looking for me and, but you know, there's millions of people, hard for them to find me and, uh, I was on the streets preaching, uh, but I remember, um, Three, on the third day after I got saved, um, I was on the streets handing out tracts. And uh, when I was handing out tracts, and I suddenly heard an audible voice for the first time in my life. It was very, very scary because I'd never heard a voice of, uh, you know, anybody's voice that was not human. A voice came from right behind me and said, this is what you'll do the rest of your life. I will take you all around the world and you will tell people about Jesus. And I looked behind me and there was nobody there. And I was really, really scared. But something within me told me that this was God. So I decided to follow Jesus. And, uh, uh, and you know, people, I got saved in 1975. And in those days, we used to be very radical. Very, very radical. We didn't stop to, you know, think of the consequences. Uh, we were, I got saved through the Jesus people and they were, those people were crazy. You know, they would just leave everything. So one of them showed me the scripture. I began to read the Bible and it says, it says something like that. Uh, uh, Whosoever doesn't forsake all that he has and follow me cannot be my disciple. So I saw that. And one thing they told me, they said, everything you read in the Bible, you should take it personally. 
God is talking to you. So I saw there that Jesus was saying, I should just leave everything and drop everything and just follow Jesus. Uh, because if I didn't, I wasn't worthy to be his disciple. Then another verse, the first verse I ever saw in the Bible, Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow after me. And the Lord said, if you're not ready to die for me, you're not fit to live for me. And because that's what happens in Muslim countries. When you, if you're a Muslim and you become a Christian, they normally kill you. Your own family will kill you. So I was faced with that, but I, but I had to obey God. So I started preaching and then finally they found me. I was arrested. I was in prison for almost a year. Uh, and then after that time, they released me. And uh, then uh, they told me that if I didn't stop this thing with Jesus, I would be executed. So that's when I escaped and uh, um, I, I ended up in Sweden. Uh, when I came to Sweden, I, was, I went to Bible school. And there I found out that the pastor who had baptized me had been killed by the fundamentalists. He was an American pastor, a missionary. He had been killed by the fundamentalists for baptizing me. So I requested political asylum. I suddenly became a refugee. And, and you know, God had his hand on me. The Lord was good to me. And I met my wife in church. We got married and, uh, you know, settled in Sweden, became a Swedish citizen. Then I went to Rema, went back home and... Uh, uh, you know, I didn't even have a proper passport. I had a United Nations refugees document, and it was very difficult to travel on that. You, you needed special visas for every place and uh, going to embassies and all that. But anyway, I did all that, and then I started preaching in Eastern Europe uh, because Eastern Europe is, Sweden is, you know, is Western Europe. We are right next, uh, like two-hour two hour flight, and you were in, in communist Eastern Europe. So I was behind the Iron Curtain during the worst time of communism. And we st I started preaching. We had up to 12,000 people in my meetings. And uh, it was amazing. We saw some of the most amazing miracles I've ever seen. I saw at that time. We saw babies born twisted and crippled, brain damaged, locked in a fetal position, get up and begin to walk completely normal, blind people receive sight, deaf people here. And all this was in the Catholic churches. And so the Catholic churches opened their doors to me and uh, when the Pentecostals wouldn't touch me with a stick because the, 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 the Pentecostals were busy arguing, you shouldn't preach about healing because everybody doesn't get healed and sometimes God doesn't want to heal people. So that was the level of discussion with the Pentecostal brothers. Although theologically I had more in common with them than the Catholics. But the Catholics prayed to Mary and they did their thing, you know. But they are the ones who welcome me. And, and people ask me, why do you go to the Catholics? I said, listen, I'll preach for the Jehovah's Witnesses if they ask me. Whoever, <laughs> who, whoever wants me to come, I'll go if anyone. So anyway, so uh, we, we, we did that for years. Then um, God opened doors in India and went to Africa, Latin America, went all over the country, all over the world. I've been to almost 80 countries preaching. We have planted over 1500 churches. And, uh, right now, what we do, we do, we do about 12, uh, open air gospel crusades every year. And we see, you know, the only true, uh, how do you say, it, true bookkeeping of souls 
you know, when it comes to money, you, you can easily do bookkeeping, you know, every dollar, every cent. But when it comes to souls, you don't know because we have massive crowds. And But my estimate is anywhere between 800,000 to 1.2 million people come to Jesus every year in our meetings. And uh, just before Christmas, I came back from India, and uh, uh, we are mostly in Africa. And But uh, we do eight campaigns in Africa, four campaigns in India. And in India, I'm working in an area which is... Uh, I should say, they, they told me it's about between 1% to 5% Christian. And by Christian, they mean uh, the only three denominations there are Roman Catholics and Lutherans and Baptists, and none of them preach a salvation message. But they're like traditional Christians. It's like saying like all Americans are Christians, you know. It's that kind of thing. They don't have a salvation message. Some places it's 1% of the population some places is 5%, but we have been going there. We have been doing massive crusades. And Pastor Randy, you have seen some of the pictures. We've got like, uh, you can't even believe it. As far as the eye can see, these people. And they come because they have needs, and God meets their needs. We have people coming, renting ambulances and bringing people from hospitals six to eight hours away, and Jesus meets them. You know, uh, this last week we had this... Uh, we saw wonderful things that the Lord did every week, and there was uh, every night. And there was one lady. This was amazing. She was uh, uh, she was paralyzed. She couldn't stand or walk. She was in her bed. She was blind, couldn't speak, and totally unresponsive. And nobody, uh, I mean, she didn't respond in any way. And they brought her in a car, and she was in that car. And when we were praying over the crowd, we always pray mass prayer. Because you can't go around laying hands when there's thousands of people. And Jesus touched her. And she jumped out of the car and she could see. She could talk. She was walking. And I mean, people went crazy. And next night, even more people came. So, you know, miracles are God's business card. They are God's dinner bell, you know. Because miracles show people that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, you know, when you're preaching, uh, I think in America, uh, miracles, you know, uh, when you pray for the sick, people get healed. You build a ministry around miracles. They say, he has a healing ministry and all that. But in those countries, we don't think that way. Miracles are not associated with a man, but they're associated with the gospel. Because miracles are an integral part of the gospel. And when God does miracles, it's not to prove or endorse anybody's healing ministry, but it is, it is two things. Firstly, it shows that this Jesus who can save sinners can also, uh, this Jesus who can heal the sick can also save your soul. If God can do this to your body, just think of what he can do to your spirit, you know. And so that is, that is the first thing. And the second thing, miracles are, uh, how do you say, proof evidence of God's compassion for people who are suffering. And so it's kind of at that level rather than the place where you talk about a man's ministry, oh, he's coming, he's going to pray, miracles will happen. Because God will never share his glory with any man. It's it's only because of the gospel and miracles are integral to the gospel message. In fact, God God wants that the gospel should be confirmed with signs following. That's the, that's the divine order of things. That's the way it should be. Praise God. So I just came back from India and it was a great time. Good way to, 
you know, finish the year. But this area where we are in, uh, I hope that is this not, this is not going over live stream, is it? Okay, good. Thank you. So I can talk freely because I'm in an area, what I'm doing is totally illegal there, you know. Uh, and so I have to, we have to be very, very prayerful because the government is very, very hard on Christians right now and they don't like the preaching of the gospel. And, uh, and, uh, the place I'm going to, it's, uh, an autonomous area. There's insurgents there, guerrillas, you know, who, who are creating trouble there. So, uh, you know, we, we, we have guards and security soldiers and all that. So, in spite of that, we, you know, and now we are starting a church planting school because I feel like we need to start some churches. So we're going to, I'm going to start a church planting school. We're going to start planting churches. We are translating Brother Hagen's books into six languages. And so we are doing that. And, uh, you know, along with church planting, we are helping Rama start some campuses in that area because the Lutherans and the Baptists and the Catholics have come to us. They said, you're getting such crowds. We want to know about this kind of gospel. Can you teach us? So we said, sure. So we're going to do five-week-long uh, short-term Bible schools for these Catholics, for these Lutherans and the Baptists because they want to learn about the full gospel. So, uh, you know, we are, we are living in exciting times. Let me just say this. We, we are living in exciting times. And, uh, and God is doing great things because there's a, there's a harvest out there and we are living in harvest time. And there's a scripture that says, Cursed is the son who sleeps doing harvest. You know, cursed is the son who sleeps doing harvest. And we don't want to be caught asleep, but we want to be wide awake and doing the works of Jesus. Amen. Praise God. Anyway, so that's, that's who I am. That's what, that's my day job. Um, uh, this is fun being here with you. So praise God. Um, thank you, Pastor Randy, for having me. Let's go to Mark chapter 11. I'm going to share something very simple with you. I, I only preach simple things. So let's go to Mark chapter 11. In Mark chapter 11, uh, let's look at verse, we start from verse number 12. Now in Mark chapter 11, verse 12, 13, 14. And on the morrow, that means in the morning, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Let us pause here for a while. So Jesus and his team, his disciples, are coming from Bethany, and they're actually on their way to Jerusalem. And uh, then they see this fig tree, and this is, he describes this fig tree. It says, this fig tree had leaves. And, uh, and then he came, and uh, then he says, he began to look for something in it, okay? It doesn't say he was looking for fruit, he was looking for something in it, and he found nothing but leaves for the time of figs was not yet. This is very interesting because Jesus was a son of the soil. And uh, and certain fruits are seasonal. And if you live in an area, uh, I don't know what fruits grow here, but where I grew up, we had mangoes. 
and we knew that mangoes and pineapples grew, grow in the summer and uh, oranges grow in the winter when it's cooler. So, you know, when you live in an area, you know what fruits grow at what time of the year. And figs are seasonal. So this was, and the Bible says that it was not the time for figs. And that is why there were no figs on the tree. So what was Jesus doing looking at that fig tree? Why was he? And, 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 and I want to tell you what he was doing. Uh, the thing is that the fig trees have a, um, fig, you know, fig trees grow in the Middle East and where I'm from and fig, fig trees have a very unique feature that long before the season for figs on every branch at every place a fruit would grow in the future when the season would come there grows a little pod that appears a little pod so if you look at a fig tree look at the branches you see lots of pods then you can actually count how many fruit are going to grow on this tree because the pods indicate to you whether this is a fruitful tree or not so what Jesus was looking for was to see whether this was a fruit bearing tree this was not really about figs or about fruit, but Jesus was, he wanted to use a fig tree to teach them a lesson on faith. So he was looking for a tree that was, a, you know, a tree that was not bearing fruit. Because God, remember this thing, that God never curses anything which is fruitful. But the Bible says that every tree that is not fruitful will be cut and will be thrown into the fire. So Jesus was, he was going to teach them a lesson on faith using a fig tree. So he was looking for a tree that was not good. So he looked to the tree and he found no pods. He found nothing but leaves. So when he had determined that this is not a good tree, so this is what he does. He, he, he responded to that in verse 14. And he said to it, no man is going to eat fruit of you hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. So what did Jesus do? He spoke to a tree. Now, this is something he had never done before. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, he was not a guy who stood and talked to trees. You know, I mean, I don't know what you think, but I don't want people to see me standing by the roadside talking to a tree. People get all kinds of ideas. What's wrong with this guy? You know, he's talking to a tree. And if I ever wanted to talk to a tree, if I felt like I have to talk to a tree, I would do it at night when nobody was there. After midnight, I would go and then I make sure there's no police officers watching. And then I would go and, <coughs> and then I would kind of look, sure, look at the tree and say, I curse you, you know, and then I'd kind of walk away. But Jesus did this in broad daylight and he spoke loudly. How do I know that? It says his disciples heard him. So he has 12 disciples and, you know, maybe a couple Peter, James and John were always hanging over his shoulders. So they were right there. But some were, you know, some were five yards away, some were 10 yards away, but they all heard him. So this is the first thing is that sometimes God will have you do something that is foolish. Talk to a tree. The second thing, he will have you do it in public. And thirdly, he will have you do it loudly. Faith is always loud. Faith always has a voice. 
and his disciples heard him. Now, it doesn't tell us. It would be interesting if there was a description of each one of the disciples, what they thought when they heard their master talk to a tree, shout at a tree loudly. But anyway, they went from there. It says, verse 15, they went to Jerusalem. And then you read that famous story when Jesus went to the temple and he overturned the money changers tables and those who sold doves and, you know, he cleaned up the place and, and he say, he, you know, he rebuked them. He said, you have turned, uh, how this house of prayer, you made it in, into a den of thieves. And now they're coming back 24 hours later, the next day, they're coming back. They're going back to Bethany on the same road. And then it says, um, Verse 19, and when evening was come, he went out of the city. And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter calling to remembrance said unto him, he said, Master, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered away. So what happened when they're coming back 24 hours later, they saw the fig tree dried up. And Peter gets excited And he says, Lord, look at the fig tree, the one you cursed yesterday. It is dried up. Now, it took 24 hours from the time when Jesus cursed the fig tree to the time when it had actually dried up. Lesson number one, sometimes faith, miracles take time. Sometimes miracles are instantaneous. But sometimes miracles take time. Do you want to know the answer? I can give you the answer. It's three words. I don't know. (laughs) Nobody knows why miracles sometimes take time. There's, the Bible doesn't tell us. We can, we can only, you know what, we, we should always remember this. If, if you, uh, if you pray for somebody or you receive prayer and nothing, the, the, you know, the person next to you receives prayer, he's instantly healed and then you feel you're not instantly healed. And then you begin to think there's something wrong with me or it's not true because when you're thinking something is wrong with me, you're speculating. Anything that you say at that stage is speculation. Uh, to say that, well, it wasn't the will of God, speculation or, uh, uh, something is wrong with me, speculation. Whatever reason you make up is speculation. And my speculation is as good as your speculation. It means nothing. You cannot build your faith on speculations. You can only build your faith on the word of God. Amen. And the word of God is silent about why it takes time. So if it takes time, you walk away from there, thanking God, praising God. Because when you thank God and praise God, what happens then? You are letting the Holy Spirit continue His work in you. Because it is really God's work and God chooses how He's going to do it. Amen? I've seen it many, many times. I remember I was in, in, in a, in a place called, uh, called Gorzow in, uh, in Poland. And I remember one meeting, there were several people who got up from wheelchairs and you know, they were paraplegic and there was this one kid, 17, 18 years old. He didn't get up, nothing. There was no change. So his parents and his family came after the service. They were very concerned. They said, well, what's wrong? What do we do? I said, well, God has heard us. And the only thing you do is just keep on thanking and praising God every day. Just thank him and praise him. Don't ask questions. Just praise God. 
There is no virtue in asking questions. Any idiot can ask questions. But it takes a man of faith to believe. So I said that just believe God. Just believe God. So a year later, I was in another town about two hours away. And this family came. They say, our boy is healed now. We did what you told us to do. Every day, we just thank God. It took a whole year. But now he's healed. Praise God. Amen. When God is at work, sometimes he just chooses to do it at his speed, according to his timetable. And don't ask questions. Just work with him. Just work with him and just thank God and praise God. It says, Abraham, he was not deterred when he saw the barrenness of Sarah's womb or his own age. But he gave glory to God. Amen. And he confessed, he declared he was a father of many nations. So... Anyway, so, uh, you know, but, but it took a, it took a period of 24 hours from the time Jesus spoke the word until the time that the tea, that the tree was actually shriveled up. Now, Jesus, most of his miracles were instantaneous. Most of them, not all, but most of them. Now, he could have, you know, been in that mode and looked at the tree after he had spoken it and said, well, nothing happened. Maybe I should uh, uh, I should uh, do it again and I should shout louder. Or, or he gives the tree a shake and uh, has Peter stand as a catcher while he pushes the tree down or, or, or something. But he didn't. He knew that the word that came out of his mouth was so powerful that it would always accomplish the purpose for which it was spoken. Because he was the one who spoke the universe into existence. He knew that when he said, let there be light, and there was light. Now the interesting thing, let there be light. That was the first miracle Jesus did. Right? The sun was created the third or the fourth day. So where did the light come from? If there was no sun. He didn't create the sun to give light. The sun was created later. You see that in Genesis. But he said, let there be light. Light came from nowhere. Because it was in his word. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So you, you have to trust the power of the word that comes out of your mouth. Amen. So anyway... Jesus just spoke the word and he knew that when he spoke the word, it was as good as done. And then he walks away and then he comes back. And when he's coming back, he sees the tree shriveled up and Peter was shouting and jumping. He said, look, master, the tree you cursed is dead. Why didn't Peter shout after Jesus had spoken the word? Why was he shouting now? Well, because Peter had to see something to believe it. Right? So now Jesus is going to teach them about faith. So verse 22, the next verse, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, have faith in God. Actually, in the Greek, it says, have the faith of God. That's what it says. Have the faith of God. So what did he mean? It means that there's a difference between the faith of man and the faith of God. The faith of man depends upon what man can see. But the faith of God, it's entirely upon his word. So then Jesus begins to talk about the power of the word, about having the faith of God instead of having the faith of man. And so 
he gives them, he gives them the two uh, methods through which this faith is released. Verse 23 and verse 24. The first one is speaking the word. Verse 23. Verse 24 is prayer. Okay, let's look at the first one. Let's look at the second one because we're going to focus on the first one. We're going to go to that. Verse 24. For wherefore I send to you, therefore I send to you, what things, things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. So this is, this is what we call the prayer of faith. He said there's a second method through which faith is released through prayer. He said whatever you desire, whatever you need, whatever you want, he says you pray. And after you have prayed, the second thing is you believe that you already have it and then you'll have it. Right? You pray and then after, as soon as you have prayed, you believe that you have received it. And then you will have it. How can we believe that we have something that we don't actually have it. How? It depends upon your relationship with the person who's going to give it to you. Because faith is always relational. You know, you know, when I came to America, I had people come to me. Oh, brother, the Lord told me I'm going to support your ministry. And I was so excited. Never did a thing. Yeah. Brother, I'm going to support you. You're doing a great work. Nothing. So I learned one thing. Don't take what people say at face value. Right? Now people have to prove, prove themselves to me for me to believe them. Now I've got another friend up in North Carolina, Bill. He's a businessman. And he's one of my closest friends. We, we, we go back like 30 years and, and, and Bill said to me, he says, listen, if you ever need anything, ask me. So, I never take advantage of him. But sometimes there's an immediate need in the ministry. I'm going to feed some pastors or something. You know, somebody needs something in Africa. So I'll say, Bill, can you send me? I need like, say, $8,000 urgently. I have to send it to Africa. And Bill will say, I'll take care of it. That's his. He always says, I'll take care of it. Now, the moment those words go out of Bill's mouth, he says, I'll take care of it. I tell my secretary, uh, there's a check coming for 8000 And because you see, Bill's word for me is money in the bank. Why? Because I know him. Because I trust him. Other people who say the same words, their words mean nothing. Because I don't know them. Faith is always relational. It's not about your ability to believe, but it is your relationship with the giver. Amen. So one of the foundations of strong faith is to have a good, a strong relationship with the Father. Amen. Are you with me? Faith is always relational. Amen. So because of that, I can claim that I have everything that God says is mine. Anything that Jesus has purchased for me with his blood upon the cross of Calvary, and that he has said in his word is mine, for me, it is mine, even if I don't see it with my eyes, because he has said it, and he is unfailing, and he's going to do it, because he has never let me down. Hallelujah. Amen? So faith is always relational. So remember that. The moment you ask God for something, so, you know, one mistake we make when it comes to faith, we often 
look at ourselves, you know, how much faith I have and, and my own ability to believe. And I look at my history of unanswered prayers and I, and I base my faith upon that. And the moment you begin to measure yourself, you will always fall short. All of us will fall short. Because those of you who think, oh, my faith is so great, I can do anything. <laughs> That's pride and self-righteousness. You know, it's either one ditch or the other. It's either the ditch of pride and self-righteousness because you think you're so highfalutin, you've got this great faith, or it's the ditch of condemnation. So faith never looks at self. Faith always looks at Jesus and at his word. Amen. And we should have that, the kind of faith where we have that relationship with the Father that says, you know what? I know this one thing, that, that my Father loves me so much that whenever I ask Him for something, He does it for me. Now, that's relational faith. And that's something we have to develop. Relational faith. Okay? Faith is always relational. So anyway, so that, but then there's a caveat there. There's a key to that makes, that makes faith work. Verse 25, and when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anybody that your father which also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. That means unforgiveness is the biggest hindrance to faith. We can, you know, we can know the Bible, know the scriptures and say the right things and do the right things and confess the right things and do everything right. But if we have grudges and unforgiveness and things like that in our hearts against, you know, what people have done to us or said to us, we will see that our prayers are not answered. And then we will wonder why our prayers are not answered when I did all the right things. Why? Do you see what I'm saying? And nobody will be, no, nobody, our pastors don't know we have unforgiveness in our hearts. You know why? Because we have developed this mask, having this perfect facade, you know, my, uh, that fools everybody into thinking that, you know, my life is as good as it is on Facebook, you know. I've, I've got this awesome spiritual life and the pastor looks at you every Sunday morning, he thinks you have a fantastic life, but he doesn't know what's going on inside because we all learn to mask this. Right? right. And then everyone says, well, Sister so-and-so has such faith and, and God doesn't answer a prayer. Why? Well, I don't know. But you don't know what's going on in there. Only the person knows. Right? So we have to, we have to remember that, uh, you know, there, there's two things that can cause uh, God not to answer our prayers, even if there's great faith. One is unforgiveness, and one is when husbands don't treat their wives right with love and respect. Ladies say yes, at least, to that. No, no, it's in the scripture. Peter said that. It's in First or Second Peter about, about husbands, how they should treat their wives so that your prayers are not hindered. You know, so if you, if you, you know, if you are this great man of faith and pastor always asks you to stand up and pray and you come home, you're an abusive husband, uh, physically or with your words. I'm sorry, brother. You got some repenting to do. Do you understand what I'm saying? So you, 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 you just can't, uh, uh, expect God to answer you. Then everyone asks questions. Why didn't God heal him? Well, I tell you why. This is the reason. Amen. So, you know, that, that's the caveat. But anyway, let, let's, let's leave that. Let's go to verse 23. Because we are talking about speaking the word. We're going to focus on that. And so, 
It says in verse 23, 23, for verily I say unto you, verily means surely. <coughs> when Jesus says something, that means he, when he puts verily, verily, or, you know, it actually means surely, surely. That's an extra stamp of, uh, you know, that's extra emphatic. So he's emphasizing, he said, verily I say unto you that whosoever, that means anybody can do it. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he says shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he says. Now, in this scripture, Brother Hagin used to point out that the word believe occurs only once, but the word say occurs thrice. Emphasis is on saying that you have got to say something to the mountain, and uh, and then it says, then you have to believe that you shall have whatsoever you say. Not what God says, but what you say. That's why it's very important that we take the word of God and put it in our mouth. Amen. When you take God's word and put it in your mouth and speak the word of God, and then you believe that whatever comes out of my mouth is going to pass because I'm speaking the word of God. It's, it's a powerful truth. And God says, I'm going to do it. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. So that's really speaking the word. Speaking the word, you speak to your mountain, speak to the circumstance or whatever you're going through in life. And, and then you believe that whatever comes out of my mouth is going to come to pass. It's going to have it. Now, the thing, why is it there when we already have prayer? Well, let me just say this. Sometimes, you know, we develop this thing that uh, we face a situation and we, and we just pray for it. You know, I tell, we tell people, I'll pray about it. You heard people say that. I'll pray about this. We pray for this. We pray for that. Well, sometimes God doesn't want you to pray for anything. He wants you to speak to the thing. Amen. So you should know by the Spirit of God when to pray and when to speak. If you are sick in your body and you're always praying for healing, there are times you've got to take authority and speak to that thing. Whatever it is, you've got to speak to it. Amen. There's actually four, four steps to faith. One is hearing the word of God or reading the word of God. The second step is believing what the word says. And the third thing is speaking the word of God. And the fourth step is acting according to the word of God. Putting legs to your faith. That's what I call it. You act according to the word of God. Okay. So speaking now, let me let me show you another place. Let's go to, go to Mark chapter five. Here we see speaking the word of God, and this is the story of the woman with the issue of blood. Do you understand my funny accent? You don't have any difficulties. Okay, good, good. Okay. Um, Mark chapter five, and uh, here's the woman with the issue of blood. And it describes her situation. It says, verse 25, And a certain woman which had an issue of blood many years, uh, issue of blood 12 years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing better, but rather grew worse. Now, describes a woman who has had an issue of blood for 12 years. You know, I'll never forget in Africa, they brought a woman to me. She was carried in a bed. She had an issue of blood for one year. And she was like a skeleton. She was pale as death. And God healed her. And I always thought what this woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years must have been like. 
She must have been weak. And, and not only that, I mean, she was weakened by the disease that had almost killed her. And she had been to many doctors who hadn't been able to help her. And I'm sure she had been to many rabbis and who could, you know, pray for her. Nothing has happened. And she had spent all her money. She was obviously a woman of means, hadn't spent all her money. But instead of getting better, she grew worse. Nothing helped her. People like that who have suffered for a long time are often, they're very jaded and often bitter. You go to them, say, hey, there's a healing service. Would you come? And they say, ah, you know, I've been there. I've done that many times. Nothing has happened. Everyone has prayed for me. Nothing happened. You know, that's normally the reaction you meet from people who have suffered a long time. But the interesting thing is that in the New Testament, most of the people whose stories are there, written about Jesus healing them, had suffered a long time. You, you, you don't read any stories of somebody whose arm broke yesterday and Jesus healed him. It often says, I'm sure there were people like that, but all the stories are like somebody was born blind or he was born deaf or he was born crippled or he had been like this for 38 years. Just stories like that. That means that Jesus can heal people who have suffered for a long time, who were born with conditions and have grown into adulthood carrying that condition. Amen. But you see, but people who make an effort to get healed and don't get healed, they get worse and worse and lose everything. Often there's a kind of bitterness and disappointment that sets in. But not not this woman. She had a little spark left in her. That was the interesting thing about her. Because look at her reaction when she heard that Jesus was passing through town. When she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. So she had a spark of faith in her and she, when she heard, you know, she was laying in a bed, she's almost dead and she's laying in a bed and she heard that Jesus, she heard the commotion outside and she asked somebody, what's going on? And one of the relations says, one of the relatives says, oh, it's Jesus of Nazareth. He's passing through town. Actually, Jesus was actually passing through that town on his way to the house of Jairus, whose daughter was dying. He was just passing through. And then when she heard about Jesus, she decided, I'm going to go and touch his garment. Weak as I am, I'm going to touch his garment. And then it tells why. Verse 28, for she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. For she said, she said, no, I did a study on this because my, my Swedish Bible, I read the Bible in Swedish, it says, for she thought. But the King James said, she said. So I checked this in the Greek and the word said is the Greek word legu, which means to loudly and repeatedly declare, affirm and proclaim something. So this woman, when she heard that Jesus was in town, she began to speak words. She began to say something. And what she said, she said loudly, repeatedly. She declared and she affirmed and she said, 
I am going to touch his garment and I shall be made whole. I am going to touch his garment and I shall be made whole. I am going to touch his clothes and I shall be made whole. I am going to touch his clothes and I shall be made whole. I am going to touch it. She said that again. And so what happened? What propelled her from that sickbed to Jesus was her words, her affirmation. She kept on saying it again and again because you see, you can make a decision. I'm going to do this, but when you're on your way, the devil can get in there and, and discourage you and tell you it's, there's no point because you have done this many times before. Nothing's going to happen. Don't be a fool. Right? But she kept on putting the word out there and she repeated it because she didn't want the devil to have any room to put his word in there. So she kept on saying, she said, I'm going to touch his garment and I'm going to be whole. I'm going to touch his garment. I'm going to be whole. I'm going to touch his garment. And that's what the Bible says. She came up behind him and touched him because she said loudly, repeating to herself, I'm going to touch his garment and I'm going to be whole. I'm going to touch his garment and I'm going to be whole. I'm going to touch his garment and I'm going to be whole. I'm going to touch his garment and I'm going to be whole. Hallelujah. I'm going to touch his garment and I'm going to be whole. And then she pushed her way through the crowd and she touched him and instantly the power of God came right into her body and Jesus stopped. Everyone is touching him, you know. He was like a celebrity. Everybody, who you know who I touched today? You know whose hand I shook today? Jesus. Everyone was touching her and him and he said, somebody touch me. And Peter said, Lord, this whole crowd is touching you. Jesus said, no. This is another kind of touch. This is the touch of faith. Who touched me? And the woman was scared. You know why she was scared? She had broken the law of Moses. But she finally said, and what did Jesus say? Your faith has healed you. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Let me finish with a story. 1980, I got baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I began to read Brother Hagin's books. And I began to find out about faith and healing and all those things. And, uh, you know, I, I, used, I used to be a street preacher. I used to be on the streets. And uh, not that I would stand in a, you know, on a crate in a street corner and shout to people. But I would go one-on-one and preach and witness to people and all that. So... And then I began to pray for people and people would be healed and I would love to go out and pray for people. I would, I would get, you know, sometimes they would kick me out, you know, but I'd get on the train because when you get on the train, they can't kick you off until the next station, you know. <laughs> so trains and buses and all that. So anyway, so I was, I was on a train and prayed for this incurably sick woman and she was healed. Uh, it's a long story and then, People found out about it. And there was a retired missionary who found out. And she called me. She said, were you praying for people on a train? I said, yeah. She said, uh, I know God is using you. I was just a young guy. I had not been to Bible school, nothing, you know. And uh, I had more zeal than I had wisdom. But I did my thing, you know. I didn't care what people thought. And she said, can you go to my home church and, and, and preach there? And that was the first time anybody ever invited me to a church. Pastors were afraid of me because they didn't know what would come out of my mouth, you know, when I'd get up there. So anyway, so, and her church was, her home church was in the south of Sweden. So 
I took a seven-hour train ride, and I got there. It was a tiny church with 40 people. It was a Lutheran church. Um, and the, that chapel had about, I don't know, 50, 60 chairs, 40 people in that church. So I was so excited. This was, this was the first time any church had ever uh, invited me. So I was like, I was big time, you know. I'm going to churches now. And the first night, everybody got baptized with the Holy Spirit, you know. And then, so the next day, you know, people were healed. And I, it was like a three-day meeting. Sunday night, I'm uh, preaching. And in the last row, I see a lady, very well-dressed, very... She looked like a woman of means, you know, wealthy lady. She's sitting with a boy about 10 years old, holding him. So I thought there's something wrong with the boy because he should be sitting next to her, but she's holding him. So I did the altar call. Then I said, who wants prayer for healing? And she comes carrying this boy and she stands in front of me. I said, please sit down. You're carrying the boy. Sit down. So I said to her, what, what is wrong here? She says, my son cannot walk. Now, what I did not know, which I found out later, that this boy had this, uh, he suddenly developed this disease and they were wealthy. They had been, they, they took him to many doctors, even took him overseas to, you know, specialists and nobody knew what it was. Uh, he just got worse and worse. All they knew that uh, they figured out he was the third known case in the entire world had this, who had this disease. There was no name for it. But his muscles were atrophying and uh, his bones were, was, I mean, the calcium, the calcium was draining from her, his bones and they were brittle like matchsticks and he was just going skinnier and skinnier. And they said, we don't know what it is, but they have two other cases in the world. There's no cure and he's going to die. Little boy. So she didn't tell me all this because, and I'm glad we didn't because, you know, when you know too much, your mind gets in the way. And so I didn't, all I knew was this boy couldn't walk. But that itself was big enough for me because until that point, I had never prayed for anyone who was, who couldn't walk. I had never seen anybody who had prayed for, uh, praying for somebody who couldn't walk. I'd never seen it been done. I just re read about it in the Bible. So I really had no idea what I was going to do. It's because here's a woman with a boy who couldn't walk and so, uh, I, you know, I began to think. And then suddenly, I remember reading a book by Brother Hagen in which he talked about the seven different methods that God uses to heal the sick. And, you know, one was the prayer of faith. The other was laying on of hands and anointing with oil and about prayer cloths and casting out devils and holy communion and the prayer of agreement, you know, and so on and so forth. So I got a smart idea. I thought, I'm going to do all seven of them and one of them is going to work. <laughs> so I said, okay, so the first thing, I'm going to pray the prayer of faith. So I stood in front of that kid, that mother, and I prayed the prayer of faith. I ticked off my list. Number one, that is done. Number two, I'm going to lay hands on him. I put my hands on that kid and I gave him a Pentecostal massage. I mean, I... <laughs> rubbed his head every way I could and all that. I gave him a solid massage. And then I thought, now I have to anoint him with oil. So uh, I used to actually those days, I used to carry a little oil bottle and I used to put some on my tip of my finger and used to make a little 
little cross or something. So I did that and I thought, uh-uh, this won't get the job done because, you know, this is a big miracle. So I emptied the bottle on the boy's head. And it was a little bottle, a little bottle, just a little bottle. And I looked at that little, you know, little drop of oil dropping down and I thought, uh-uh, this ain't good enough. So I used to carry a one liter refill bottle. So now you've got to understand, I'm a young preacher, you know, and I used to keep it behind the pulpit. So I took the one liter bottle out and uncorked it and I poured the whole thing on the boy. And the, and the oil came down. She was wearing, I'm sure that, that dress must have been a thousand dollars. And there was oil all over her dress and going into her shoes, you know. And there was just oil all over him. And I thought, okay, now I've done the oil thing. Now I'm going to pray or pray over a prayer cloth, you know, in Acts chapter 19. So I took a handkerchief and I prayed all over it and I put it on the boy's head. So you can imagine, here's the boy, hair ruffled up, covered with oil, handkerchief on his head. Then I said, okay, I'm going to the next, do the next thing, cast out demons. I began to shout at the devils to come out. And I was screaming and yelling and commanding the devils to come out. Then I, all the time I'm thinking, now, if there's any devils in there, by the time I'm finished, they'll be out. <laughs> but if there's no devils there, no harm done, you know. So I did that thing. And then, and then I thought I had to... Uh, to pray the prayer of agreement. So Pastor Eric, that was his name, he was sitting in the corner. I said, Pastor Eric, and, and, and he, he was going like this, and he, he, you know, he, and he, he was thinking, what have I gotten myself into with this guy? And so then Pastor Eric, I said, okay, fine. So, uh, I want to give holy communion to the boy. So I said, Pastor, do you have any communion? And again, he did this. And so I said, okay, five out of seven isn't bad. So, I've done my best, so then, then I'm finished. And I, the mother looks at me, she said, now what? I said, what, now what? She says, now what? I said, well, your boy is healed. He is? I said, yeah, he is. And she picked up the boy, put him on the ground, he fell straight down to the floor. And uh, she picked him up, I helped her pick him up again, put him back, and now, you know, you know the, the human brain is, is Amazing. When you're in a tight corner, it thinks very fast. So, so I, she said, now what? She said, you know, uh, the prophet said to Naaman, he had to dip seven times in the river Jordan. So she tried seven times. He fell on the ground and then she picked up the boy and nothing has changed. So now, uh, she says, uh, what should I, what happens now? I said, your boy is healed. She said, he is. I said, look, I did everything that the Bible tells us to do. Now God is working. I said, so this is what you do. Every time you look at your boy, every time you think of your boy, I want you to open your mouth and say, thank you, Jesus, that you have healed my son. Thank you, Jesus, we have prayed for my son and you bore his diseases and infirmities and he has been healed. Thank you for healing my son. She says, my husband will think I'm crazy. I said, because he's not a Christian. I said, well, that's the price you have to pay. Do you want your son to die or to live? She said, I want him to live. I said, you do what I tell you to do. Anyway, uh, the service ended. And uh, after service, Pastor Eric, he just vanished through the back door. <laughs> he, he, he didn't greet me. I was staying in someone's home. Next morning, they drove me to the station. And I got on the train. And I'm on the train back to Uppsala. Uppsala is like... Seven hours away. This is in the south of Sweden. 
Uppsala is in the center part of Sweden. So I'm on the train. And while I'm on the train, I'm going to this thing in my mind. And, and there's this thoughts they're saying to me, your ministry, your preaching is finished. Because Sweden is a small country, you know. I mean, you sneeze in the north, people in the south know it, you know. It's a small country. Everybody knows. I said that my, nobody will ever have me preach ever again. I'm done. I'm finished. But then I, but then I responded. I said, no, let God be true. Let every man be a liar. The word of God is true. I have done what the Bible says and the word of God is true. And God's word is always true. So that's what I stood on. And I, I was, that seven hour train journey was torture for me. When I came back home, in those days we didn't have cell phones, you know, we had those landline phones. I come back home and, you know, my, my wife is Swedish and she's very conscientious. Everything has to be, you know, this whole work ethic, everything has to be done right. No cutting corners. The first thing she said, Pastor Eric has been trying to reach you. And, my thought was, oh my God, the boy is dead, you know. And that was my first thought. But I didn't say it, you know. I learned one thing that just because you think something, you don't say it, you know. And that was my first thought. Oh my goodness, what's happened? So I told my wife, you know, I'm tired. I'll eat something. She said, no, 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 you call him first. He'd been trying to call you all day. I said, okay, give him the, my, give me his number. So I called him. And so Pastor Eric picks up the phone. I said, hey, how are you doing, Pastor Eric? It was so great to see you. How's the weather down there and all that? He says, brother, brother, you know that woman who came with the son? I said, what happened? He says, she called and she wants to get a hold of you. Here's her number. I said, what happened? She said, I don't know what happened. She was just looking for you. Ooh, I said, is this a lawsuit or whatever, you know, is going to happen? So I called the woman. I called the lady. I said, this is Pastor Christopher Alam. She says, oh, Brother Christopher, thank you for calling me. She says, this morning I was in the kitchen preparing breakfast and I laid my, my, my son on the floor on a mat, you know, so I could keep an eye on him. And I did what you told me to. I, every time I looked at him, I would say, Thank you, Jesus, that you have touched my boy, you have healed my boy, you're doing your work in his body. She says, when suddenly he gets up and he walks two steps and then he falls down again and he's the same as before. What's going on? I said, God is at work. Let God do his work. And uh, I said, this is my number. Call me anytime. Next morning she calls me. He had gotten up and walked four steps and fallen down again. Third day, he got up and he walked across the living room, fell down again. Fourth morning, she calls me and she is hysterical. She's crying. She says, Pastor, my son, he got up this morning. He has been running around the house. He's playing. He's jumping. He's doing okay. And there's nothing, you can't even tell that he was like that. He's perfectly healed. This was 1981, before I went to Bible school. Right? 81. How how long ago was that? 39 years ago? That young man, the mother has passed away. That young man now lives in Norway. Has his own business. Has two kids. Wow. Perfectly healthy. He's, he's with me on Facebook. So I know what he's doing. 
And you know what he does as a hobby? He runs marathons. Wow. You know, let, let me just say this. I, uh, I've thought of him many, many times. And I thought, you know, when he was 10 years old, uh, he could have died. If nobody did anything, he would have died. And today, 39 years later, he would be nothing but a statistic in a medical journal. You know, talking about documenting these cases. People wouldn't even remember his name. His name is Matthias. Nobody would know his name. He wouldn't have a story. His, his life would have been like a, a book with blank pages. With nothing written on it. His mother would remember him, but she's gone now. But he's alive today. He has a family. He has a life. He has a story. Why? Because of a foolish, unwise young preacher who made up in zeal what he lacked in wisdom, who decided to believe the word of God. And a mother who decided to... Stand in faith for her child and refuse to give up. What did it cost me? All it cost me was that mental battle I had to fight. The battle in my mind. Do you understand? And we all have to fight those battles. But very often it is the thoughts that win and not not the word of God. But standing in faith. Speaking the word of God. It can save someone's life. It can save someone's life. And it can give them a life. Where there is no life. Where there is no hope. There is no future. Second Corinthians 4. This is the last verse I will read to you. Verse 13. We having the same spirit of faith. According as it is written, I believed and therefore I have spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. You know, the word speak there, we, everybody say, I believe, therefore I speak. I believe, that word speak is the word kaleo in the Greek, which means to call out. Call out. Loudly, to call out. Raise your voice. Call out. Pastor Randy, I call out if he's at a distance. Call out. Speak out. We see that same word in, in Romans 4.17. Abraham believed God and he says, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things that are not as though they were. Calling out. Speaking out those things that don't exist as if they already existed. Hallelujah. That's the spirit of faith. The spirit of faith isn't just making noise and shouting. The spirit of faith is calling out, speaking out those things that do not exist and calling them out as if they, ex- as if they existed. Faith always has a voice. Calling out, calling out, calling out those things that be not, that only exist in your faith. There are things that exist in your faith. Right? Yeah. 
There are things, if you are sick and you, you have a healing, but it's only in your heart, it's only in your desires, it is only in your faith. So what you do, you begin to call it out. You begin to open your mouth and call out that healing and begin to speak it out and begin to declare it loudly every day. Thank you, Jesus, that with your stripes I have been healed. By your stripes I have been healed. By your stripes I have been healed. So you maintain that voice, maintain that voice, calling out those things that be not as though they were. Hallelujah. Praise God. Let's bow our heads together. Thank you, Father. Father, we honor you. We glorify you. We praise you. We thank you for your holy word, Father. Father, I thank you for these precious people. Thank you for your hand upon each life. Thank you for your plans and for your purposes, Father. We thank you that nobody is left outside of your grace, but your grace and your mercy is upon us all.